everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg, your host for Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hey, Times Will Tell listeners. It's Jessica Steinberg, and I'm joined this week by Jeff Abella, the chief executive of Mocha Origins, a boutique coffee roaster and chocolate retailer based in Honesdale, Pennsylvania, actually specifically in a 100-year-old former dairy barn on the grounds of the Himalayan Institute, a yoga and meditation retreat in northeastern Pennsylvania. Abella and his staff of 15 work this business for a far greater purpose. The beans, coffee, and cocoa cacao, are part of the Institute's humanitarian efforts to help subsistence farmers in Cameroon and looking toward farms in Uganda, Costa Rica, and Mexico. And they're basically looking to find better ways to help these farmers earn money and support themselves under better conditions. Jeff actually spends a considerable amount of time at the farms with his young family. He'll talk about that a little bit. Um, But really, this story is about very good coffee and excellent chocolate, and it's also just as much about social entrepreneurship. So welcome, Jeff Abella, to The Times Will Tell. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. So what I want to start with, because there's a lot of different parts to your story, is tell us why you got into this business. And you can start a little bit from the beginning, even Himalayan Institute. and But really, you should start from where you want to. Love it. There's several places I could pick that up. And I think uh, the most logical one would be uh, why we got into chocolate and coffee and uh, kind of fell in love with, with those two products. Uh, ultimately, it kind of started when we learned enough about chocolate and coffee. We originally kind of fell out of love with the mainstream supply chains that exist to uh, to bring those products to the market. And this happened when my wife and I were living and working in uh, West Africa in a country called Cameroon for the not-for-profit, the Himalayan Institute, which here in the U.S. is focused on meditation and, and, and yoga, but internationally focuses its attention on international development, specifically education and healthcare. And so our backgrounds, that's my wife and I, is international development work. And we were in this beautiful region for about 10 years in Cameroon. And while we were not focused on cocoa and coffee, we were, however, in cocoa and coffee growing regions and become, um, became very close friends and, um, and, and parts of these communities. And so while we were living and working there, we started to realize how much potential agriculture has and how much importance agriculture um, has and the role it plays in the community's economic structures. And we also realized, however, though, kind of the harsh realities on on the farmers in terms of their the income they receive from the beans that they grow and sell. And so we started kind of questioning everything uh, in terms of how can these two foods, chocolate and coffee, which the world consumes billions of every single day, oftentimes not afford to feed the families of the farmers who grow those beans. And we really kind of put our focus into understanding more about that. I'm interrupting you for a second because, Jeff, you have this line that I I think about a lot when I even talk about mocha myself, which is that your the farmers that you met had never actually tasted chocolate or had a cup of coffee. That's correct. In fact, I remember one of my first meetings uh, when we realized we wanted to do something with cocoa and coffee. Um, and we wanted to do something that was 
uh, developmental in nature, meaning a social impact venture, but we wanted to do it as a real business, something where the market demand would be strong enough that it would sustain itself over time. And so we went to one of these first meetings with a cocoa cooperative. And I'll never forget, you know, I was in my early 20s, super naive, excited to, uh, you know, use these two in- ingredients to change the world, knew nothing about them other than that farmers aren't earning enough and that cocoa was used to make chocolate. And so I went into this cooperative meeting with this lovely group of farmers who uh, we had been uh, familiar with for for years. And what I walked out learning about cocoa was nothing that I walked in knowing. I, through the meeting, met with, I'll never forget, her name was Ma Lucy. And Ma Lucy explained that cocoa trees were something that her her ancestors had planted on their family's farm. And their farm was their key asset. They didn't have savings accounts or other investments. It was their land. And that land was their cocoa farm that their families had planted for them generations ago as a future investment in the livelihood of their, their families. And it was the cocoa that paid their school fees, that put food on the table, and made sure that the family had income. And what I walked out realizing was cocoa is so much more than the key ingredient in chocolate. It's the livelihood for thousands of farmers in West Africa, in our instance in Cameroon. And what I then started realizing about cocoa is that the price for beans greatly influences how much farmers earn, as well as what the chocolate price will be. Ultimately, when a chocolate bar is priced for a dollar or two and you work those numbers backwards, there's no way that farmers are earning a living wage income for the beans that they're selling for that kind of chocolate. So we started to explore why. How could we increase the price of the cocoa so that the farmers earned a living wage income? And a lot of it had to do with quality. So when we started looking at the chocolate bars on shelves at that $1 to $3 price point, the the quality is not deserving of a higher price point. And so we started to explore fine chocolate. What is fine chocolate? Um, Well, it's chocolate that's made out of beans that are our specialty in nature. Um, Number one, they're ethically sourced. They're nuanced in flavor. They've been properly fermented. They have unique flavor characteristics that result in a unique flavored chocolate. And so back on the farm side, we started to explore different methods that farmers could use to increase the quality of the cocoa to become fine flavored. Uh, And when a cocoa bean is uh, of fine flavor or high quality, um, the chocolate will express itself in that way and consumers will respond and pay more for those beans. So that's what we focused on in 2017 when we built Mocha Origins as a chocolate and coffee company, which is to source beans from the farmers that we knew as well as farmers that we would soon become familiar with and work with their beans to make extraordinary chocolate. Now you've got this operation here where you both roast coffee beans and you create these fine chocolate bars, these artisanal chocolate bars in really quite an array of flavors, um, tastes. But tell us, I know that there's kind of a fun backstory here where you schlepped some beans back in your suitcase and you roasted them in a toaster oven and you watched YouTube videos about how to make chocolate. I mean, there's a lot there and it took 
I think, well over a year for you to figure out. And Chelsea, your wife, was figuring out with craft paper how to actually wrap up the chocolate bar. I mean, you know, talk about Rube Goldberg-ing it in terms of what you did. I'd love to hear now how many pounds of coffee you roast, how many chocolate bars you guys are making, where it is. But if you want to also get started with how you made that all happen and how you got to where you are now, I think we'd love to hear it. Absolutely. So I'll fill in the gaps a little bit. So we had that initial meeting with the co-op and started to really research ways uh, that we could work in communities to um, to develop uh, finer flavored cocoa. And our goal was never to make chocolate and coffee. At that point, and this was back in, I started the research project in 20, it was like 2011, 2012, and into 2013. We, we didn't rush any of this. We started to source bean samples from farmers who were doing it right, and then started Mocha Origins Farming Project in Cameroon. It's a beautiful little farming school. And the idea was that we would become a centralized bean aggregator and fermentary and find buyers in the, we'll call it in the consuming countries where they're making the chocolate and coffee uh, to sell to. And in doing so, we were, you know, bringing back bean samples. Uh, Jessica mentioned, uh, you know, smuggling back 10 pounds, 50 pounds at a time in our suitcases. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget buying some bean samples from the the forest and realizing they weren't dry enough yet and they were going to mold by the time I I got them on the airplane. So I begged the hotel in the capital city to lend me about a dozen uh, fans and and use their parking lot to dry beans in this in this hotel. Anyway, so we started bringing back bean samples and and sending them to laboratories and other chocolate makers. And we're getting really good feedback. Um, and so much so that I said, well, what is chocolate anyway? I know it's made with this cocoa bean, but how does one go about processing it into this this food that we all know and love, like this nostalgic, classic, chocolatey flavor? How do you get that from this bitter seed of a cacao fruit? So we bought a little microwave toaster oven looking cocoa roaster. And actually, it was a coffee roaster. It was a one-pound coffee roaster that we figured out how to roast about two pounds of cocoa in, and then a small tabletop chocolate grinder. And so I had a shed uh, about 100 yards from our factory, and between roasting and grinding chocolate and making coffee in there, um, we realized we really loved the outcomes that we were producing, and the process itself was really fun and kind of let us express our creativity and and, and using these beans from producers that we knew. So it was this like direct supply chain ultimately resulting in really good quality chocolate and coffee that our inner circle of family and friends said they liked, or I don't know if they were uh, pretending at the time, but luckily the first batch came out pretty good and we stuck with it. And so finally my uh, wife said, you got to get the heck out of my house with this uh, chocolate making and find a bigger shed. I was taking up the the counters and you know the, the smoke from the roaster. So we found this beautiful old dairy barn available at the campus of the Himalayan Institute and rented that in 2016. And then started building what today is Mocha Origins. It's our chocolate and coffee roastery based here in the Poconos. I would love to know where you're up to in terms of numbers, like how much coffee, how many chocolate bars. And 
But really, I think much more of essence to this question of where a lot of people are eating dark chocolate now and, you know, 72%, 80-something percent. Um, but And coffee is a thing. It has been for a long time. What makes mocha coffee and chocolate different than what people eat or drink elsewhere? And I think that's something that you add a lot of uh, explanation and to the to the conversation to understand more about it. Absolutely. So I remember our first batch. It was a, it was a full ten pound grinder of of chocolate from cocoa beans that we sourced from this village called Combone. And uh, I remember lugging these beans in from the farm and working with uh, Stanley, our, our farming partner, to do that. We made this lovely batch of chocolate, and that ten pounds of chocolate ended up resulting in about 50 chocolate bars. And that was to us a massive batch of chocolate. It was 50 bars that, you know, maybe for a month we were going to sell at, I think our bar prices were about $15 based off of our labor times. They should have been a lot more than that. Um, And we sold through those bars in a weekend. And we just felt like, I, I remember that feeling that people cared and were appreciating the quality enough, um, or at least just entertaining our, our, uh, uh, intention, but they really did buy in, and we it, it encouraged us to try again. So we kept making batches of chocolate, fifty to hundred bars at a time. Now we're up to doing about ten to fifteen thousand bars per month. Um, I have an amazing team. I just pinch myself every time I walk into our our little factory here uh, that we're able to do that much volume in a way that has not jeopardized quality. And same with coffee. And so those two products equal several hundred units per year now, uh, several hundred thousand units per year. And that's something that we're really proud of because we've kind of um, bootstrapped that from a knowledge standpoint and and really equipment standpoint and sustainably built our manufacturing process to be able to achieve that from the days of the 10 pound grinder in the shed to now what is um, several thousands of pounds worth of chocolate grinding just on the other side of the wall that we're talking on here. And uh when I think about what differentiates us and what kind of keeps our product growing in the market, it, it starts with, it, well, number one, it has to be, you need good quality cocoa and coffee beans. It's all about the bean. And to us, that means two things. It means that the quality of the bean has the potential to make good quality chocolate. Unlike the the bigger guys in the market, there's like four massive chocolate companies in the world making um, a, a lot of chocolate. It'll all taste the same. And when you're making chocolate that only has maybe 15% cocoa in their chocolate bars, you're not going to taste a defective bean. And fortunately for them, they can pay very little for those beans and that keeps their price down. Unfortunately for the farmers, they're paying the price for the world's cheap chocolate. So our chocolate is different in that it's 72% or above in, in terms of darkness or in terms of cocoa quantity. That's what that, that means. And you're going to taste every bit of that bean. And so it all starts with good beans that have been uh, from a good variety of cocoa, from a post-harvest practice such as fermentation and drying. And then I think the second point that keeps our our chocolate uh, tasting as good as it does and getting better is the roasting process. Uh, We roast our beans very specifically to achieve a flavor outcome that the bean 
that, that the bean lends itself towards. For example, our beans from Tanzania are super vibrant in flavor. A lot of tannins, a lot of acetic acid that's generated from the fermentation. And when we roast it in a certain way, we volatilize that acetic acid so that the the bean isn't sharp and acidic, but instead it's like cherry and like raspberry note appears in the in the cocoa itself. Um, that's really special to that bar. Um, our Ugandan has like a beautiful, rich, creamy texture, and the flavor is um, almost apricot um, or a little bit of citrus. Versus our Ghanaian bean from Ghana, the beans have this classic like nutty, kind of nostalgic cocoa, chocolate, like brownie kind of flavor. So all the beans are different, but they do need to be high in quality. And then trade ethics need to be very high as well for us to even consider those beans in terms of uh, farmers and compensation. So that's what keeps our bars um, relevant to the consumers is how they taste. And to us, they're a vehicle or an expression of our social impact commitment. We'll take a quick break from my conversation with Jeff Abella, CEO of Mocha Origins, a chocolate and coffee artisanal maker that looks to make a difference with farming communities in Africa. The surge in anti-Semitism since the October 7th attacks has changed the Jewish community's relationship with a slew of social and political issues. In the newest episode of The Glue, Jewish Federations of North America President and CEO Eric Fingerhut talks to Congressman Richie Torres, who has proved to be a pro-Israel bridge builder about everything from DEI to social media. Their conversation is fascinating. Listen to it and subscribe to The Glue with Eric Fingerhut wherever you get your podcasts. The Jewish Quarterly is the leading international journal of ideas and culture. In the August issue, Kim Gattis investigates Iran's 43-year quest to dominate the Middle East. Arye Dubnov casts light on Israel's first native Hebrew speaker. William Miles reports on the Jews of the West Indies, plus features on the Ukraine pogroms, the Sassoon dynasty, and Hannah Arendt. Jewish Quarterly, out now at good booksellers worldwide or subscribe at jewishquarterly.com. And we're back with Jeff Abella, the CEO of Mocha Origins, a chocolate and coffee maker in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. I'm looking at the array of chocolate bars here because, of course, there's also just the, 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 the additional flavors and tastes that are, that are put into these chocolates. We've got this toffee almond and espresso and sea salt. And you've got that new one that you have, which is the quinoa, the quinoa crunch. I found out about Mocha through a summer camp that I spent time at, Camp Ramon the Poconos, which is up here in this neck of the woods. There's a lot of summer camps up here. And of course, you know, it, it, it does feel unusual. Like you're, you're in this summer camp area that I've been coming to for most of my life. And then there's this Himalayan Institute. And within the Himalayan Institute is Mocha Oranges and this um, former dairy barn that is now an artisanal chocolate and coffee factory. So there's something interesting that is 
certainly of interest to our listeners, which is your kosher. How and why? I think that's certainly something that people want to hear about. Certainly. So kosher to us was kind of another step in, you know, a lot of people think of kosher um, because of what the kind of the values of that certification stand for, which is uh, very true and, and authentic to us. But one other thing about kosher is the strict process controls that kosher governs. And we take within our manufacturing process, many steps towards high quality manufacturing. And so uh, we were already organic certified, which um, follows a lot of the same principles in terms of kosher's quality assurance. Um, And then kosher just takes it up a notch. And so um, we became kosher uh, about three years ago, maybe, maybe four. And, uh, um, part of it was because we were already organic certified and kosher was offered. Um, obviously, there's some additional steps and requirements uh, that don't make it easy on us. We need separate pieces of equipment for a lot of different things and um, a lot of audits and certifications. But it was one thing that allowed us to kind of differentiate ourselves from a quality standpoint, a quality assurance. And um, it's something we have a lot of um, uh, passion around maintaining those high levels of of quality in our manufacturing. We do work with about half a dozen Jewish summer camps in this area who then are intrigued by that because there's not a lot of small batch chocolate companies that are kosher certified. So that definitely differentiates us. But to me, it wasn't so much marketing leverage than just a uh, manufacturing process control and uh, just made a lot of sense for us to do that. And through which has been unique because now that we're kosher certified, uh, we and, and we work with these um, these summer camps in the area, a lot of people find out about us and our kosher certified product. And why I think that's special is because fine craft chocolate is something that the world should be consuming more of. The more specialty chocolate using fine flavored cocoa, really the more impact we'll have in the farming communities where those beans are grown. So for us to be able to offer that, to me kind of broadens the net in terms of potential people that would engage in our social impact project. Again, we're using chocolate and coffee as a vehicle to drive social change. So what does that really mean? The more chocolate and coffee we can sell, the more good we'll do. And by making kosher um, a, a part of that, it opened up a whole nother consumer demographic that I think is helping us get the, the products out there even wider. Which definitely leads me to something I've been thinking about through our conversation today, which is you're clearly making a success of this. It's doing what you want, what you intended for it to do, which is to plow those profits back into these farms, help them with better farming methods, etc. At the same time, does it ever make you want to switch gears and say, hey, we're making these great products. It's, it's succeeding out there in the market. You're in Whole Foods, as an example, correct? Yeah. So I know, I think I know you to say that you're going to say no way, but I, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that. That's a really juicy question. Um, and I'm excited you asked it. So with my background being in community development work, there's definitely other opportunities to, to work in communities to establish social impact projects beyond coffee and chocolate. Um, so I definitely have the interest of keeping my focus on community development or impact investment projects. And that won't always be coffee and chocolate for for myself. 
Uh, for Mocha Origins, it's very focused on coffee and chocolate. It's successfully working with farmers in a way that is impacting them and working with a consumer base to um, increase awareness around the supply chain problems and how high quality products like ours can fix that. I think it's um, a point of kind of time like priority in one's life. And right now my priority is to make sure Mocha becomes a a stable company and can grow at the rate that it needs to to sustain in the marketplace that it's in, which by the way, is highly competitive. It's built around low cost manufacturing at high volume. It's up against other chocolate companies that have massive buck, um, budgets to market better than you, sell stronger than you, distribute wider than you, and produce chocolate and coffee at a much lower cost than us. So the odds are stacked against us for sure. We are five years in, we're doing well, we're sustainable as a company, and we're growing. And I think that's largely due to our discipline in terms of who we try to market our products to and who we don't. And now that we're in channels like Whole Foods or channels like Mom's Organic Markets or just sales channels where our product is well aligned, I do think there are other products that can have social impact that we could apply to those channels. So I do think that you'll see a broader set of products coming through the Mocha Origins brand outside of just chocolate and coffee that will also have pretty significant social impact. Last question. Have you brought the chocolate and the coffee back to your farmers? And what do they think? Like, what do they think about a cup of coffee? What do they think about a chocolate bar? We, we have, and it's so awesome to share the experience. Um, you know, we, we take a lot of joy in it because we put so much hard work in getting the beans to our factory and making chocolate that we, we believe tastes good to then be able to take that back to the farmers who grew the beans where it all started it has so much meaning for us. And I have seen it in the faces, on the faces of the, of the farmers tasting those chocolates um, that, number one, they're tasting the outcomes. They're literally tasting the fruits of their labor, which isn't a common thing. The cocoa farming community is not the manufacturing or consuming communities. Now, there's some exceptions to that rule, like chocolate makers making chocolate at the countries of origin, which I'm extremely excited about furthering or supporting. But generally speaking, the communities growing the beans are not usually the ones manufacturing or consuming the products. And there's a big disconnect. The disconnect is that the cocoa farmers aren't necessarily um, in touch with the the manufacturing process or the um, the cons- the consumption of it. And what does that really mean? It means the value addition is not taking place at the farm level. Farmers are earning the short end of the stick in terms of the value of the cocoa to chocolate making process. So our goal is to level that playing field. And when we get to have a chocolate being cons- uh, tasted by the farmer who grew the beans. That's kind of like the first step of just creating awareness. Secondly, there's a disconnect in that the con- the manufacturers and the consumers don't um, aren't aren't connected with the growers and and the origins where the beans come from. So that creates this lack of awareness. When we talk about supply chain um, issues or um, slave labor or forced labor on cocoa farms, a lot of times consumers are shocked to hear that these things really exist. And I'm shocked to hear that they're shocked to hear that they exist. These are extremely um, severe problems happening at mass scale. And it all starts with, I believe, a disconnect from consumer 
to grower. And so when we can bring consumers to the origins where we grow the beans through our annual origin adventure trips, where you go and harvest with cocoa farmers and experience their cultures, that's part of us educating consumers to the realities that cocoa farmers face. And when we're able to bring chocolate back to those origin communities and start to support chocolate being made at origin, um, that's how we're hoping anyway to kind of even the playing field for farmers. So letting farmers taste our our chocolate um, means a lot to us and I think just creates a more transparent supply chain in general. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Jeff Abella, it has been such a pleasure to have you on The Times Will Tell. We are really happy to have heard your story. We'll also have an article that is, as usual, attached to the podcast with links to Mocha Origins so you can get a sense, a greater sense, listeners, of what's out there. And again, Jeff, thank you. Jessica, thank you so much. It's always an honor to tell our story and to be with you uh, is even more an honor. It's uh, really fun to be able to contribute a story to an audience that values the ethics and the, the work that we're putting in. So thanks for the opportunity. Our pleasure and listeners will be back on Sunday with the Daily Briefing. Until then, happy listening and have a good weekend. Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and check out our Daily Briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.